0: SCP-001 Mamjul and Karar Part 4 The Davite Covenant had their issues, participating in mass slavery and blood sacrifice, but at the very least they valued knowledge, learning, and culture. The Abominate and its prophet, the Black Star, on the other hand, only seemed to value conquest and bloodshed, effortlessly conquering Amani Ram, before setting their sights on the Deva, the Foundation is determined to find out how exactly the Black Star managed to annihilate both the Mechanites and the Davites, and hopefully use that information against their current threats. Knowledge, of course, comes with a price, though, it's just a matter of who pays for it. Let's continue. We begin again with another set of verses from what is presumably the Song of the Deva, which reads, as witnessed by Raplatre, fifth Rajmata of the Scarlet Maharaja. And once the beast had laid waste to Amani Ram, torn the city asunder and set the armies loose to tear each other apart, it continued its dreadful march across the desert and into the jungles and forests of the Covenant. And in this it was victorious, for it had slaughtered the grand armies at Amani Ram, routing the men and spirits of the Deva from the battlefield, sending them into a desperate retreat through the thickets and undergrowth, to Mamjul, to Salvation. And so it was that the armies of the Deva were forced to abandon their peoples, their sacred charge and those of their children, as they formed a great mass, marching ceaselessly towards their stronghold, the ancestral home of the Deva, where they could mount a defense but as with all things, such decisions are rooted in sacrifices of blood, of honor, of duty. And the ultimate sacrifice was made a hundred times over. Loyal soldiers left to their devices against the chaos of the horde, knowing their deaths inevitable, taking solace in the fact that their deaths might preserve their afterlives. Because it was understood. That were the Black Star to lead his armies across the isthmus and into Mamjul, he would lay siege to the city, and break it just as he had broken Amani Ram. The slaughter would be wholesale and complete, and not only of the material plane. For were the three-pronged army to bring down the walls of Mamjul, to seize the tree they would tear apart the roots seeking the original gift of the scarlet, the source of the Maharaja's power. And should they take it from his sleeping corpse, he would crumble away to nothingness, robbed of his immortality. And as he crumbled, so too would the dream he dreamt, and Karar with it. On April 11th, following several months of cooperative research from all teams of the Mamjul Karar initiative, the first revision of the Davic Empire Cultural Briefing was finalized, covering nearly every aspect of cultural knowledge that the Deva had been willing to share. It represented likely the first written record of the Deva's existence in centuries, perhaps millennia, and a meeting of the Anthropology Committee was called to discuss forward action. Galanis enters the conference room and announces to the group that after six months, several hundred interviews, and thousands of hours of research and cultural study by every member of the initiative, the final draft of the cultural briefing, all 954 pages of it, has been submitted to O5 Command. The room bursts into cheers and claps for nearly a minute until Galanis calms things down and thanks all of them saying what an amazing job they've all done. None of them knew what they were getting into when they made their first dive into Mamjul, but they've all handled the impossible job with an exceptional air of professionalism and duty. Another, more reserved round of applause rings out from the room, and Galanis says that while this is a huge milestone, their work isn't over yet. The briefing is a pretty exhaustive look at the culture and anthropology of the deva, but their historians still have a lot of work ahead of them. Additionally, they've been informed by the o5 council that they'll be seeing some new faces this week. A crew of researchers from the applied thaumaturgy division are being flown out. Desai asks if they're getting wizards, to which Galanis replies that technically they're mages, but yes. The council has a lot of interest in seeing the applications of David thaumaturgy, so that's a new avenue of research. They all have a lot of work to do, especially the para-history team, but for now they can enjoy their day off. Most of the group clears out of the room, leaving only the team leads and Galanis left. The team leads are glad that the culture briefing is finished, with Yijun, head of linguistics, saying that she's relieved, since if she never talks to a Deva again, it'll be too soon. Galanis looks at her suspiciously and asks what she means, although Sheridan, head of archaeology, says that Galanus knows what she's talking about. Galanis doesn't, and neither does Aberer, head of anthropology. Sheridan says that the deva aren't exactly a squeaky clean culture, although Aberer says that such a thing doesn't exist. Yijun asks them if they didn't find it weird or creepy when these huge creatures started talking about sacrificing their slaves. Ramaswami, head of para-history, says that it wasn't enjoyable to listen to, but one needs to keep an open mind about such things, as they are a civilization from 3,000 years ago. Sheridan argues that they're not in the ancient world, and he wrote the section where they talk about finding the sacrifice pits in Mamjul, calling the deva a brutal, militaristic culture. Ramaswamy counters by saying that 400,000 people died in the construction of the Great Wall of China, and countless thousands of slaves in the construction of the pyramids, so they cannot apply their modern, moral axioms to the actions of kings from a thousand years before democracy was even thought of. Sheridan says that even if that were true, they still have to face the fact that they did awful things, mentioning that the rajmata showed Galanis the atrocities during the war. Galanis says that those were mutual atrocities, and the first war was rife with them from all sides. Yijin still says that they're guilty of doing terrible things, but Ramaswami asks if humans are any different, with how many people die in pointless resource wars or terrorism or senseless acts of violence every day. Sheridan counters that our culture is a little better than the people sacrificing kids to the blood god, although Aberer accuses him of being reductive. Yijun doesn't totally agree with Sheridan, but she bets that if you went in and asked any deva right now, they'd still tell you that enslaving lesser creatures is okay. Aberer says that they're approaching this from an anthropological perspective, and just because he finds some things morally reprehensible doesn't mean he gets to cast judgment over an entire culture, as that's no basis for scholarly research. Galanis raises their hands to try and calm things down, saying that they may have gotten a little too close to the subject of the research here, but Ramaswamy says that that's not always a bad thing as Galanis' close relationship with the Rajmata is the only way they've learned so much. Galanis agrees, but says that their work requires a little distance to be able to remain impartial. Yijin, however, replies that the David language has 40 different words for religious torture, and after the better part of a year studying these things, can Galanis really say that the image they've gotten isn't one of a brutal theocracy? Galanis again tries to calm things down, and Sheridan asks them whose side they're even on, leading Galanis to stutter out a response, until Desai steps in and tells him to back off, and if he talks like that to Galanis again, he'll break his nose. After a brief pause, Sheridan quietly apologizes, and Desai says that they're only here because Galanis stuck up for them to the council, otherwise they would've all been behind desks months ago. Galanis says that it's all right, as it's been an emotional day, and dismisses the others. Afterwards, Desai asks Galanis if they're okay, to which Galanis says, yeah, but then sighs and says no, not really. Afterwards, Galanis wrote another memo, discussing the concerns the team brought up. It reads, Well, today was shitty. I didn't realize there was this kind of an ideological split among the leads. It's jarring. I don't know how to feel about it. On one hand, Carl and Vijay are right. The one thing they hammer into you throughout your undergrad, graduate school, doctoral work, your career, is that trying to apply modern, moral conceptions to ancient cultures is foolish. Foolish. That's how ethnocentrism starts. Our modern morals are a product of an exceptionally high quality of life, wealth, and lifespan. The Deva didn't have that. Like almost all ancient empires, their culture was built off the back of a gargantuan apparatus of slavery, imperialism, and state violence. But at the same time, it's a unique situation, right? The deva aren't ancient. Well, they are, but they're not extinct. It's not like you're talking about the egyptian slavery system, where everyone involved has been dead for thousands of years. The deva still exist, and yijun is right. They still hold these beliefs. The rajmata certainly does. Everything is a matter of perspective. Whether the Deva are a product of their time or a warlike empire, maybe both. It's more complicated than that. It's so complicated. I think we might have gotten a little close to the subject of research here. We had to immerse ourselves in the culture to learn what we did, but I'm not sure we've learned what immersing ourselves has done to our own perspectives. Not to mention the fact that we still need to figure out what happened to the Covenant after a money rom fell. This new stuff about the three prong army and the abominate slash wretch and the black star. I'm looking through all our databases and plenty of mundane academic ones. I've come up entirely dry. Except for one thing. VJ caught it. The mortuary temple of Ramses the third the basis for the mythology of the Sea Peoples, an unidentified culture group that sweeped through and laid waste to Asia Minor, Egypt, and the rest of the Mediterranean during the Bronze Age Collapse. We have no records of who they were or how they managed to annihilate a slew of powerful military states, just some Egyptian writings that prove their presence in the region. But the Rajmata mentioned the wretch had crawled out of the sea and quietly built an army that proceeded to steamroll over every other culture on its way to money Ram. Writings in Money Ram and the Rajmada's testimony indicate that the three-pronged army came out of North Africa, and the sea peoples would have had to push through Egypt if they wanted to get to money Ram. It's not perfect, and the evidence is circumstantial, but it's something. Though it raises two more questions that have been nagging at me. The first, what happened to the historical records of the wretch? If a culture really did sweep through North Africa and then obliterate half of Asia, there has to be some kind of archaeological record of it. It doesn't make sense. And the second, why would Robert Bumaro be so terrified of something from 3,000 years ago. Despite the finalization of the culture briefing, the primary goal of the initiative remained to construct an accurate timeline leading to the fall of the three empires and identify the abominate. Galanus's sessions with the Rajmata had reached the fall of Amani Ram in approximately 1200 BCE, which is where the historical model constructed by Nussbaum ended. The council unanimously agreed to permit further sessions, and Galanis and Greaves returned to Karar. They find themselves standing in a lush verdant rainforest, with the trees in front of them growing thinner until eventually turning into a wide clearing containing a large village. Several dozen large stone buildings and many smaller wooden huts form the low, flat settlement, the architecture consistent with many of the constructions in Mamjul, and Karar. There is no one else visible, and both Galanis and Greaves are confused about where exactly they are. Greaves pauses though, his hand unconsciously going to his side, and he says that something is wrong, as he recognizes this feeling. The rajmata then materializes out of the trees and says that she had a feeling that he would. She had to gauge whether or not Greaves would be able to recognize an ambush. She then waves a hand out towards the empty clearing, and although Galana says that there's nobody there, Greaves says that they're everywhere. A shimmer then passes over the field of view, and the incandescent silhouettes of hundreds of deva are briefly visible, crouching on the floor or standing in formation, armed with all manner of weaponry. They all are facing the far end of the clearing, and the Rajmanta explains that they're temporarily invisible due to a spell by one of their sorcerers. Greaves asks what for, and in the distance a horn sounds, growing closer. After a minute, a massive black horde rushes out of the trees, charging the deva line. The deva flanks rush forward, crashing into the enemy. As shouts and screams immediately fill the air, punctuated by the horn and the steady beats of war drums. Galanis notices that the enemies aren't Nalka, but they're human, and the Rajmata explains that this is the Black Star's Horde, the three prong army. The three watch as the soldiers charge out of the treeline, human warriors dressed in dark armors and leathers, tanned skin visible underneath. The generals and leaders are clothed entirely in suits of plated armor, and the soldiers don't appear to be using any specific kinds of magic or anomalies, just simple bronze weapons and wooden siege engines, but their sheer numbers and ferocity are enough to force the deva backwards. Greaves remarks that they just look like any old painting of ancient soldiers, so what was their deal? The Rajmata says that they scorned the deva magic, as well as the nalkas and the Mechanites. They had no qualms using it against them, but they were not believers. Their advantage was not in the weapons they used, as they were utterly human, but their advantage was in their leader. After Amani Ram fell, she recalled their armies from the eastern front. She begins to say that half of their largest force had vanished, but then remembers that they had actually died when a money Ram transported. They were going to be marched on by the three-pronged army, and they were too powerful for her to split her forces. She recalled her armies to a smaller city called Theijam, which rested on a narrow isthmus and would function as a choke point. The three-pronged army was far larger than hers, so she elected to trap them at Theijom. This unfortunately took several months of full retreat however, and her armies were scavenging the land for sustenance while running, tails tucked between their legs. If they didn't offer any resistance, the faster and lighter armies of the wretch would catch up, with no supply trains or civilians to slow them down. So they would massacre the Davites. Greaves realizes what they did then, as she had to leave behind just enough soldiers to put up resistance and prevent the pursuing force from catching up, with no chance of victory. The rajmanta says that they knew they were sacrifices, the thousands of soldiers left behind as pockets of resistance. The wretch washed through from the desert, pushing through the last vestiges of the Meccanite territory before smashing into the Deva. She sighs and looks at the carnage occurring past the tree line, at the massive 3 pronged army, endless soldiers dressed in black metal armor and armed with long pikes, lances, and saw swords. The scene begins to cycle, switching to a similar scene in a more temperate jungle that is aflame, The Covenant and the three-pronged army clash amidst thick foliage and underbrush set on a rapidly spreading fire. Charred bodies litter the ground, and a number of Deva are covered in fire, eating away at them. It switches to a wide, flat desert plain, with a number of Covenant soldiers forming a defensive line of thick shields. A huge force of wretch cavalry on massive black horses crash into the waiting phalanx and shatter it, routing the army. The wretch's forces lay siege engines against the walls of a settlement, leaping over the battlements while artillery barrages the defenses. The Rajmata says that he destroyed her empire long before he took Mamjul, as they abandoned cities, people, spirits, and everything else to the horde. Galanus asks who she means, and she points a long hand forward, showing a figure in every scene dressed in intricately formed black armor, his head obscured by a large spiked metal crown. His shoulders are draped in a long dark cape, and unlike the rest of the soldiers, his only weapon is a single sword hanging by his side. Rather than charging headlong into the fray, he remains on the front lines but in a rearward position. This is the black star, and the rajmata says that he is one of the most powerful beings to ever walk the face of this planet, and the blood of nations drenches him. Galanis remarks that he looks just like a regular person, but the Rajmanta says that he is no longer human, although he once was, and that's what makes him so dangerous. This is why they couldn't face him directly on an open field, and why she had to abandon her men to the wolves while she bought time to recall the home guards of their smaller cities to Thijam. The scene shifts to a view of a small, largely empty narrow strip of land with seas on either side. A ramshackle village of straw huts and roots is visible near one of the beaches and the Rajmata says that this was once a quiet fishing village, with fishing vessels manned by slaves from sunup to sundown. There was an annual festival, wherein the catch would be slaughtered along with a number of slaves, their blood mixing and pouring into the sea, making the surf run red with blessings. This tiny strip of land connected them to the mainland, allowing them to trade with the fledgling city-states of humanity. A large disorganized party of Davic soldiers is shown arriving from the north and make camp on the southern side of the Isthmus. The scenes are in fast forward, and show bloody armies arriving in retreat from the north under scarlet banners, fresh reinforcements from the south, beasts of war and siege engines. More and more soldiers arrive, the encampment swelling to at least a hundred thousand troops stretching far into the south. Greaves asks if they just lied in wait for the three-pronged army, but the rajmata says that it was quite the opposite. A line of finely dressed sorcerers stretches down the width of the isthmus, at least twenty-five kilometers. They dig their hands into the ground, and with an inhuman effort, raise the beginnings of a wall, made of intertwined stone, sand, root, and vine, petrified and hardened. It slowly rises out of the ground, inch by inch, until the sorcerers collapse, many of them clearly exsanguinated of all the blood in their body. Soldiers then rush forward with tools, fortifying and expanding the structure. Even as the dead sorcerers are replaced, their blood spilt into the foundations of the wall. The cycle continues as the sun sets and rises and sets and rises until the wall is dozens of meters high and as thick as a building. Staircases and ladders let soldiers man the high battlements. Galanis and Greaves remark on how this wall is both taller and thicker than the Great Wall of China, by a lot, and ask how they managed this without architects, construction machines, or anything. The Rajmanta asks if they see the gateway in the wall, and Grieve says that there isn't one. She says that anyone on the other side of that wall was going to be killed, and this was their last stand. This is what drove them, and drove her, the understanding that she must do what she has to for her people to survive. Galanis remarks that her people didn't survive though, as Jewel is still at the bottom of the ocean. And the covenant is dead. After a brief pause, the rajmata admits that no, she failed, and Galana says that they need to know what the abominant is and how it broke the deva. The rajmata says that this method of showing her memories is a loophole in the laws that she and the deva have been bound to. They are seen more than any living creature in three thousand years has, Galanis appreciates that, but it's not enough. If the black star still lives, if the god he serves still exists, they need to understand them to be able to defend themselves. Galanis asks the rajmata again that they be allowed to commune with the scarlet. It knows the abominant, and it cast it out to sea, so it's the easiest way to learn what they need to know. The Rajmanta says that communing with the scarlet is a dangerous task, and she has been wedded to it for centuries but has only done so a handful of times. To commune is to invite another presence into your mind, and to invite a god into your mind is like packing the seas of the world into a pot. The pressure would annihilate them from the inside out. Greaves asks what if you have a strong enough pot? A strong enough vessel, and the rajmata says that perhaps it would work then, but the last time a man had such fortitude was the founding of the deva covenant. She then clutches her forehead, and the dream around the group shimmers, saying that projecting the dream is intensive and she is not as young as she once was. The projection then dematerializes, melting into puddles of nothingness That drip off the boughs of the tree. They are still in the canopy of the tree, shaded by the branches, and the Rajmata is supported by a flock of the masked brides. She bids goodbye to Greaves and Galanis, and Galanis dematerializes back to the material plane, while Greaves stays behind. He asks the Rajmata what she thinks they're doing here. He says that she just talked of her sacrifice about her willingness to do anything if it meant her people would live to see another day. She failed, but they haven't yet, and they might still have a shot at surviving. They're willing to do whatever it takes, and if she denies them access to what they need to save themselves, it won't just be her own blood on her hands, it'll be theirs too. He then dematerializes and ends the projection. Sometime later, on May 3rd, the first group of researchers from the thaumaturgy division arrived at the research ships via helicopter. A meeting of the research committee was held shortly after to determine the level of involvement and direction the team would have. Since the psychotronics division had successfully mastered the process of inducing projections, Blackwood was sadly sent back to site 19 via the same helicopter as it departed. As the meeting begins, Sheridan apologizes for his rude behavior in the last meeting and says that he should have voiced his concerns more professionally. He still retains his concerns and thinks that they've gotten a little biased in their analysis, but he apologizes nonetheless. Galanis accepts the apology and moves on, welcoming Dr. Carrick, the thaumaturgy team lead. She says that her team has settled in as well as one can be aboard a floating tin can, as they're not a very nautical bunch. Galanis replies that none of them were when the project started, except Greaves maybe, as they're pretty sure he was born in the marines. Galanis nudges him, and Greaves smiles slightly. Galanis asks Carrick if they're finding the analysis sufficient, but she says that it's a very solid start especially for people who aren't thaumaturges, but all thaumaturgy really is, is a framework for understanding magic. To understand what drove the Deva's magic, and how they can utilize and recreate that, her team will have to converse directly with them. Galana says that that can be arranged, and she should begin to have her personnel tested to see which ones will have the easiest time getting into Karar. Karik says that that'll definitely help. But the problem is more so that they don't really feel comfortable tapping into spirits for their thaumaturgy yet without a greater understanding of the processes at play. They'll be limited in what they can do without the deva, and she's just trying to set a realistic expectation, as they won't be able to do the miracles that the deva could do, at least not at first. Yijun mentions that the psychotronics division is seeing increased power draw on the equipment they use to stabilize and support the astral projections, something about needing to work harder to keep the projections stable. Ramaswami then says that he looked into the sea peoples, as Galanis asked, and found almost nothing. The old files from Amani Ram indicate the middle kingdom pharaohs were at least aware of the anomalous empires which might help explain why only a temple in Egypt has any record of their existence. On the other hand, amun was also conspicuously lacking in contemporary sources, and it existed fine. He doesn't believe in coincidences, and says that the surviving Meccanites spread their culture and technology throughout the Middle East and North Africa, but lacked any contemporary source, only appearing in the Quran as Iram. The deva appear to have done the same for indian culture, taking the role of kumari kandam. It stands to reason then that the three pronged army are the kernel of truth behind the myth of the sea peoples, as they certainly would have had to push through the region on the way to mamjool and beyond. Sheridan mentions that the only thing the mundane archaeological community has ever found related to the sea peoples were bronze weapons and since the three prong army looted money Ram, and scuffed fulad looks an awful lot like bronze, it just makes too much sense. He asks about the name, the three prong army, and if that means anything for the deva. Yijun looked through the preliminary translation they've compiled, and as far as she can tell, it quite literally just means three points. It could be a descriptor of their military strategy, or it could be referring to a trident, possibly fitting with the sea people theory. Moving on to discussing the town of Thijam, Sheridan says that it seems like it would be an isthmus connection between mainland India and the now sunken continent. Ramaswamy remarks that isthmuses have historically been of great importance in ancient cultures, such as in the case of Constantinople, or the Suez. It makes sense that they would make their choke point there. The problem is, however, that they can't find it, as they don't even have a very good understanding of what the continent looked like back then, just altered maps from a money ROM and maps from Blackwood's journals. The narrowest point of the isthmus could be a kilometer south of the tip of India, a hundred, or even inland. Sheridan sighs and says that it feels like they're at a point where they've run out of knowledge to collect, and they're not any closer to finding out their answers. Galanis counters that they've learned a lot about the deva, what they were, and what happened to the world after a money rom fell. Sheridan says that he's an archaeologist, so he knows firsthand what it means to search after knowledge most people will never appreciate, for the sake of nothing but the knowledge itself. But if this black star stuff is still an existential threat, they need knowledge that they can apply, and they're not getting that here. Galanis says that Carrick is making a great start on applying Deva magic, and Greaves finally speaks, saying that as the representative from the Council, they're quite pleased with how the project is progressing under Doctor Galanis. Sheridan says that he's not questioning Galanis's leadership. He's just saying that he thinks it's time to go to the source of the knowledge. Galanis responds that they'll take that into account, and dismisses the group. Afterwards, Greaves and Galanis are standing together on the deck of the ship, looking out over the sea. Galanis thanks him for sticking up for them back there, and he says that he was telling the truth while grabbing a cigarette and lighting it. He says that he's worked in the foundation very nearly all his life, and noticed that their academics tend to get myopic, so they need a reminder of who's signing their paychecks. Galanis says that he's not wrong, although it's also not a problem confined to the foundation, and asks him if he's really been working for the foundation his whole life. He says that he was 21 when Vietnam ended, and he had no college education and no prospects. He had a friend who said he knew a government agency that was willing to hire veterans who didn't ask questions. He did a year in site security, then worked in all sorts of mobile task forces, including New 7 zeta9, and Ada 5 before getting handpicked for the big one. Galanis says that he's killed people then, causing him to look at them askance. Galanis apologizes, but he says that yeah. He's killed people, but he's not one of those Kilgore nut jobs. He doesn't take any pleasure in it, and at least for the foundation, he knows that it serves a greater purpose than some political game. Shooting at rice farmers with AKs to stop the red menace isn't doing anything for anyone, but shooting at someone who plans to release and recapture the lizard to use in his Nazi private military company is something he feels pretty comfortable doing. Galanis says that it still can't be easy to kill someone, but he says no, killing someone is the easiest thing in the world, it's what comes after that's the hard part. Galanis asks how he deals with it, and he responds that he has a kid, 13 years old, and she plays the clarinet. These people, like the mechanites and the serpent's hand, would have her live in a world filled with danger, where science and human society can't survive, where wizards and terrifying monsters are a real possibility. He asks himself what he would do to ensure that she has a future to look forward to, and the answer is pretty much anything. The foundation's the only thing holding this world together, so yeah, he takes orders to kill for them because it's his role to play. He then offers the cigarette to Galanis, who waves their hand, and says that they were never any good at taking orders, and still aren't. They're being pulled in about thirty different directions at once, with half of the research committee thinking that they've all gone off the deep end, the other half thinking the others are being ethnocentric troglodytes, the council, o5-1, the rajmata, the initiative itself. It's a lot of pressure although Grieve says that Galanis will get it done, because they're a leader and leaders rise to the occasion. Galanis doesn't feel like a leader, but Grieve says that that's usually the first sign that they'll make a good one. They stand in silence then for some time, watching the waves, until Grieve says that it's awfully calm. Galanis responds that that's what it looks like, but it isn't. And no one seems to realize it except for Greaves. He's sat in on all the meetings with the Rajmata, so he knows that they're about to learn how the wretch destroyed Momjul, and once they do, the show's over. The council will have what it wants, and they'll transition fully to trying to weaponize the knowledge they've worked so hard to collect. Greaves flicks his cigarette butt into the sea, and asks Galanis if They don't think that they should use what they've learned to defend themselves. Galanis replies that they have an ethical responsibility to both respect the Davis culture and to make sure they don't get any power, because the last time they did, they enslaved a solid chunk of the population of Asia. The last time they tried to weaponize the power of one of these cultures didn't go well either. Greaves doesn't see how researching their magic to apply themselves is inherently evil. There's risks, for sure, mentioning Project London Bridge, SCP-5549, but that was thirty years ago, so they're better at this sort of thing now. Galanis doesn't think that it's evil either, but it's complicated. It's also not what they signed up for, as they're a historian and they came here to study history no one had ever seen before, not this. Galanis feels like they're all standing on a precipice, with no one else realizing it. Greaves asks if there's nobody else Galanis can talk to, and they reply that the only other person who's ever been in this position is currently a fugitive from Foundation custody. They both chuckle, and Greaves says that if Galanis ever needs an ear, he's there. Galanis thanks him and mentions that they have a session with the Rajmata tomorrow night. Greaves asks why they're waiting, to which Galanis says that the psychotronics team is fiddling with the machinery. Apparently there's been some issues with people randomly dropping out of the projection, like a bad phone connection. They're not sure what to make of it yet, but hopefully it's just an equipment issue. This is presumably where the narrator would say that it wasn't an equipment issue. Galanis asks Greaves if he has a higher clearance than they do, and he says that that's not really how clearance works, but sure. Galanis was thinking about the weird effect whenever the Rajmata said the name Blackstar, so they ran a few queries against the memetics division database, but kept running into blockers and clearance checks. Galanis asks him to bring it up to the council next time he checks in, just to pass along the request. After a brief pause, Greaves says sure, and heads off to do some work. The following day, Greaves and Galanis entered into another astral projection meeting with the Rajmata, with the goal of determining how exactly the black star was able to take Mamjul and exterminate the David covenant. They enter into Karar standing on the great wall that surrounds the city, and find the rajmata looking out across the featureless cosmic expanse, alone and without her handmaidens. The rajmata asks them what they see, and greaves just says it's the astral plane, and emptiness. The rajmata asks what the astral plane is though, and what its essence is. Galanis says that it's another layer to reality, superimposed on top of our own, but this isn't the answer she was looking for. Greaves however says that it's a dream, and the rajmata says that he understands. She waves a hand out, and says that all of this was once supported by the minds of everyone in Mamjul, when they dreamt. The deva's existence depended on them, and theirs on the deva but now there is no jewel to rely on. Karar rests entirely on the dream of the scarlet Maharaja, whom Galanis refers to as her husband, which the rajmanta supposes is true. They have no particular word for a male spouse, as every relationship in the world is formed of the dominant and the subservient elements. She is a master to her people and the maharaja is master to her. Galanis finds it interesting that they don't have a conception of gender, and the rajmata says that they don't in the way that humans would think of it. The physical body is irrelevant, as all of their souls rest in karar, and the form one takes in mamjul in between reincarnations shouldn't dictate their lot in life. Surely they have experienced enough lives and enough forms to make any such determination irrelevant. She says that people are what they wish to be, and no more. Moving on, the chanting of the city begins to take on a different tone, becoming less wildly harmonious and more into a somber register. It slows down, the words becoming so long and deep as to be incomprehensible. At the same time, the view changes as grass starts to sprout out of nowhere far below and spreads, trees forming out of non-existence and the sky going from star-studded blackness to a deep blue. Karar melts away behind them, replaced by vast plains and countless figures crawl out of the dust. The three then find themselves standing atop the battlement, the wall of Thegium with a vast, unspeakably large army in front of them. Formed into tight regiments, they mass around the base of the wall with siege engines that are not even half the height of the gargantuan barrier. At this height, each soldier is the size of an ant, and the swarm spreads far, far into the foggy distance. Greaves estimates it to be around half a million men, and is astonished, remarking that it's twice the size of the largest army ever fielded. Galanus then tells him to turn around, and he sees that on the other side of the wall is another massive force, not quite as large as the three-pronged army, but still occupying the vast kilometers of beach between them and the jungle line. They're organized into massive lines, pole arms extended to meet a charge. The wall is the only thing that separates the two forces and in the distance, far to the south, the huge boughs of the citadel tree are visible. Grieve says that this has to be the largest battle ever fought, at least a million men, at the mother of all choke points. The Rajmata says that her belief was that the sheer size of the wall and the army would demoralize them, but she was fatally incorrect. In Fast Forward, The sun sets and drops below the horizon, and a scattering of huge bonfires form on both sides of the wall. The siege engines have been disassembled, as the attempts at scaling the wall are obviously pointless. Instead, they are reassembled into a collection of trebuchets, catapults, and ballistas, all aimed at the top of the wall with large heavy booms, their payloads of huge stone boulders and explosive tar collide with the battlements. Deva soldiers huddle behind the stone barriers as the wall shakes with every impact, but it still holds firm, hour after hour, night after night, as they return fire with their own weapons of war and sorcerers. The Rajmata says that she underestimated the interminable nature of human persistence, as she thought that they would realize the wall was impenetrable. Not just physically, as she sealed it herself with a ward wrought in blood. Galanis remarks that blood sacrifices are common in daevic magic, so what was so special about this one? The rajmata explains that they are common, but the more powerful the sacrifice, the stronger the magic. After a brief pause, she says that she rests comfortable in the knowledge that her children would have been slaughtered regardless of whether the horde broke through. Seven bodies, seven wards, seven chains to protect the scarlet Maharaja from those that would seek to destroy him. Their souls belonged to Karar, to him, and she simply did what he commanded, releasing their physical form with the same dagger that she was anointed with. This is the black dagger that they found initially in the throne room in Mamjul, which is why it survived when nothing else did. The Rajmata says that her children's flesh was so sweet and innocent and it was the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate protection. She then turns and spits on the stone wall as the scene continues to fast forward. The sun rises and sets and rises and sets as the siege carries on for a week, then two weeks, then a month, and two, and then six. The wall continues to be battered and stands firm as the vines and toxic clouds and poisoners fall from the walls and collide below, thinning out the black star's forces before they are immediately crowded out and replaced. The defenders are killed and replaced by more reserves from the amassed army, and sorcerers raise water spirits to destroy any attempt to cross from the sea. Grieve says that they're not going away, instead laying siege to the wall, just like how they did to Amani Ram. But Mamjul is protected and the Davites are clearly holding out, so what happened? The Rajmata says that their master arrived and a ravine forms in the vast army as soldiers separate, standing a respectful distance away from one figure. He appears to be a regular man, but his very presence is larger than life. The battlefield bows toward him as he makes his way to the encampment, flanked by his guard. A full moon hangs overhead in the smoky sky, and he soon disappears into a tent. Greaves and Galanis are both bothered by his presence, remarking that it feels like their brain is boiling when they look at him, and it's like he can see them. The Rajmata explains that most magicians in this world are simply that, magicians, sorcerers, and warlocks. People who have a particular leaning towards the esoteric arts and have studied years to apply them to perform even the slightest magic. The black star is something else, as the world itself shapes around him. Greaves and Galanis recognize this to mean he's a reality bender, a class 4 at least, or maybe a class 5, although they haven't seen anything above a class 2 in decades, and a class 5 is only theoretical. The rajmata doesn't understand, so Glanus explains that they're called ontokinetics, or reality benders people who can mold the world to whatever they want. This is the most powerful they've seen in a long, long time. The Rajmata says that such is the blessing of a god, and explains that he stayed in that tent for seven days and seven nights, while the abominate hung overhead, lending him power. Ahead, the bright whiteness of the full moon begins to fade, and it sinks low a dark star in the sky, blackened and scorched, surrounded by a corona of white light, burning like the eye of a great dead god. After some time, the sun rises, but the moon remains locked in place, hovering over the horde. The tides of the sea malform, twisting and turning, rising and falling in different directions. The Rajmata asks if they feel it and Galanis says that they feel sick to their stomach, like they're going to vomit. The Rajmata says that this is the wretch, primarch of chaos, lord of disorder. Where it goes, the natural laws that govern us fail. Once, the Mechanites accused the Davites of being wild people. In a sense, they were right but even in the most untamed wilds, a natural harmony emerges. Survival of the fittest. Domination of the meek. The cycle of life. This is what the scarlet embodies. She looks out towards the battlefield as the waters rise even higher and turn into rough, raging seas, inching up the beach, constricting the Davic forces into tighter columns. She says that on the eighth day, he emerged, bathed in the blood of her people. A figure exits the tent, and the army separates around him, flowing like water as he marches to the base of the wall. The defenders sling vines and casks and magic, all which disintegrate before ever reaching him. A storm has gathered overhead, as hard sheets of cold rain slam into the muddy ground and the stone walls, Lightning spiderwebs across the sky, and the seas slam into the land as the black moon watches its prophet make his way to the base of the wall and kneel, brow dripping sweat, hands dripping blood. The Rajmata begins to say that he raised his hands, but the connection suddenly severs, and the projection dematerializes. Galanis reawakens aboard the ship, gasping for air and clutching their head, wondering what just happened, while Greaves hasn't awoken yet. In the middle of the astral projection, a sudden and unprecedented equipment failure occurred in the psychotronics lab, causing the projection to lose connection and damaging several pieces of equipment. Galanis awoke unharmed, but for unknown reasons, Greaves remained unconscious and in the fugue state slipping into a coma an hour later. The immediate assessment by the psychotronics division and medical personnel was that the LSAP array embedded in Greaves brain resulted in some kind of adverse reaction to the psychic backlash, or was in fact the cause thereof. Before any decision could be reached on moving him to the infirmary or extracting the array from his brain, the array reactivated despite no longer being attached to any discernible power source. The transcript printer it was attached to began to print a large amount of nonsense text with no clear meaning or purpose, and extremely faint delta waves were detected from Greaves in an EKG. On Galanis's orders, the ship was temporarily quarantined, and re-entry into Karar was not possible until replacement components for the damaged equipment were rush-ordered from the nearby foundation site and delivered via helicopter to the ships. Due to the time-sensitive nature of the project, typical foundation practices to obscure logistical transportation were ignored. The components were installed on May 25th, and two days after contact was lost, Galanis re-entered the astral projection to assess Grieve's status, and if possible, recover him. A doctor tells Galanis that if anything seems weird or off, they should pull out immediately, and if they don't get back within six hours, they're going to quarantine the ship indefinitely. Galanis enters the astral projection, at the same place before the projection dematerialized on the wall of Thegem, overlooking the vast horde of the three-pronged army. Time is frozen however as the sheets of rain hang in the air, and the surf of the rough waves is frozen in mid-splash. Despite the stillness, it is not silent, and drumbeats can be heard through the air, far, far louder than ever before. The voices making up the chorus are high and strong, reaching a loud peak as they sing out from every direction. The rajmata and greaves stand overlooking the scene. And he turns and runs to greet Galanis. He asks what happened, as Galanis simply vanished and it's been hours. Galanis replies that it's been three days, and there was an accident, an equipment failure in the lab. It pulled them out of the projection, but Greaves slipped into a coma, with the array continuing to output nonsense text about dreams and waves and the sea. Greaves is not pleased to hear that he's in a coma, but Galanis assures him that they're going to get out and wake him up. The Rajamata, however tells them not to leave yet, and says to listen to the dreams, the growth of the words covering all around them. The song of the deva has arrived at its final verses, the crescendo, crafted by them even as the waves bore down. So that they would always remember who rent them. They cannot leave now, as they have come so far, all of them have come so far. They must listen to the song, and be the deva's chronicler. Greaves tries to say that they'll come back, but the rajmata replies that they will not be able to. She sighs, holding her head, as the world around them shudders and glimmers for a moment. She explains that the failure of the projection was not a failure of their equipment, but rather Karar, the dream, has been splitting apart, failing, fraying at the edges of their great tapestry. Galanis asks what that means, as this is the Maharaja's dream, and the rajmata says that he was able to support them, as they quietly worshipped him, for three thousand years. They had a balance a harmony of primal violence, and their arrival has upset it and upset him. The dream is collapsing, and if they leave now, there will be no Karar to return to. The secrets of the Deva will go with them to whatever lies beyond paradise. There is no body willing to take the interminable burden of being the Maharaja, the dreamer. A Deva cannot do it, so they need a human, and the Maharaja's physical body has long since rotted into dust at the bottom of the sea. Galanis says that they'll find a different way then, but Greaves says that they have to stay and listen. This is the home stretch, and if they don't take it home now, it'll all have been for nothing. He has an obligation, so he's staying, and Galanis reluctantly agrees to stay as well, Telling the Rajmata to hurry. With a deep groan from the Rajmata, the dream suddenly continues as rain begins to slam down, the waves crash, the Black Star slams his palms against the ground, and the ground begins to shake as the moon hangs yet lower. Against the crescendo of drums, the Davik army tightens its grips on its weapons and braces itself for a charge that will never come. The Rajmata says that the black star knew he could not take the wall, so he broadened his scope, like the animal that sees he cannot drag home the carcass and resolves instead to consume it all on the spot. His god was thrown into the sea and spent a thousand years crawling back up to land, only to turn around and do the same to them. The waves on either side of the isthmus crash again this time substantially higher. The army looks to their sides and again tightens, only for the waves to grow even higher. The forces at the rear begin a retreat, one that quickly turns to a rout. The army rushes back even as the water rushes forth from either side, drowning the base of the wall. The ground shudders again, and the soldiers in the center of the mass realize what is happening. The sea is not rising, but rather they are sinking. The three of them float off the top of the wall, rising higher and higher into the air, past the clouds until the minuscule soldiers disappear completely. Finally, they stop at a bird's eye view of the entire region, the continent being a large, free-hanging peninsula extending forth from the tip of the Indian subcontinent. Thijum lies at the thinnest point, and Mamjul lies near the center of the peninsula. As they watch, the entire landmass grows incrementally, marginally smaller. The moon draws yet closer, pulling the water, sinking the continent beneath the waves. The coastal areas disappear in a frothing mass of blue as the waters make their way inland in raging floods and violent rain. Bit by bit, the entire continent drops below the sea, until only the highest point, a small patch of land containing Mamjul, remains. The Black Star, thanks to the power of the Abominate, was able to sink an entire continent as easily as slitting a throat. Galanis says that this was the annihilation of the Deva, wiped out in a matter of hours, But the Rajmata says that this was not their annihilation, and bids them to witness the final hours of Mamjul. The scene shifts to the streets of the city, showing terrified and confused civilians, slaves, and soldiers running in every direction, attempting to escape to higher ground that does not exist. Mothers carry their babies, or are forced to leave them behind by the shoving of the crowd. Sorcerers rush to the battlements but find their abilities are useless against the raging sea. Some citizens even raise their swords to slit their own throats, secure in their future in Karar. Throughout all this, the dream is strange, fragmented, sounding and looking as though passed through a thousand filters, breaking apart the image and putting it back together again. In front of the group lies a grand, marble paneled building. Galanis recognizes it as the library, the dilapidated one they found in Mamjul, filled with blank tablets. The Rajmata says that destroying them was not enough for the Black Star, as they had fought back and held back the Horde, unlike the Mechanites, who had ignored him until it was too late. For this affront, for daring to stand against him, He was not content to destroy them, but had to annihilate them. Scholars run through the halls of the huge library, both Deva and human. They carry huge armfuls of scrolls and tablets, plinths and statuettes, all carved with complex swimming writing and pictographs, rushing to get them out of the way of the flood. But even as they do so, the tablets fade as though rubbed clean of their etchings and the ink on the scrolls melts away the statuettes and plinths lose all features and writing and the carved etchings throughout the rest of the hall are rubbed just as clean the scholars stare at their objects in wide-eyed shock even as cold water begins to seep in from under the door the rajmata says that the davic empire once the pride of scholars and artists the world over, now reduced to nothing. No evidence of their existence, no writings, no monuments, no great chronicles to survive them. Galanis remarks that it's damnatio memore, condemnation of memory, the ancient practice of scrubbing undesirable figures from official histories. The memory then flickers again twitching and melting in places, and the Rajmata says that the Maharaja's dream is collapsing, so they must hurry. They rise again into the sky, to a bird's-eye view of Mamjul. The raging waters around it build up against the triangular walls of the city, forming a thin barrier as the water rises, until it spills over. Buildings collapse, citizens drown under the deluge, forming a living wall of bloated bodies bearing down on others. They watch as over the course of minutes, Mamjul sinks into the ocean, exterminated of all life, a dead city sinking to its watery grave. The boughs of the citadel tree are the last to disappear under the waves. The Rajmata says that now they see that the covenant was destroyed totally and utterly and the song of the Deva remained the only record of them. She apologizes for the deception, but she needed them to understand, to remember them, when there is no longer a dying king's dream to support them. They're interrupted by a loud resounding explosion sound from above, ringing through the heavens. Greaves asks if that's the dream falling apart, but the Rajmata says that no. That was not from the dream. We've seen now how the David Covenant fell, as the monstrous Black Star managed to sink an entire continent thanks to the Abominate's powers. We still don't have a great idea of what exactly the Abominate is or what it wants, but the Foundation's time for learning about the ancient past from the Rajmata has come to an end. Now things in the present time are about to become a lot more interesting, and the foundation isn't much closer to being able to beat the Church of the Broken God or the Abominant. We'll find out how the story of Mamjul and Karar ends in part 5.